Well, thank you for that introduction, Pastor Steve. Puts a lot of pressure, make sure I don't strike out uh, this time. Uh, but nevertheless, it's great to be with all you. You have heard people say this over and over again. It's just such strange times, um, and this is uh, it continues to be so. I'm still not used to worshiping in this way, but uh, it's the season that God has placed us in. Uh, I have five children. Uh, they're all teenagers, uh, so it's been an interesting time living in, uh, in our home. Uh, with a bunch of teenagers and all the the video games and the Netflix and all the uh, kind of navigate that. Uh, we did a drive-through graduation for my second daughter. Uh, we had, you know, these weird proms and all these different things that we try to do to keep things normal. But, um, you know, we're here and, and uh, we're going to be turning to God's word. Uh, I really appreciate the topic that Pastor Steve asked me to speak on. Uh, and that's simply the topic of marriage because um, COVID has put a strain on marriage. It, it's, it's everywhere. Uh, a lot of my friends, um, a lot of people that I've ministered to and I know, we've all shared the same thing. My wife and I, we've gone through our own uh, struggles during this uh, pandemic. The stress is high. The uncertainty is high. Uh, and, and there's just so much we're using um, you know, one of the things my, uh, my, my spiritual director was telling me is uh, we're all exhausted because we're using muscles that we never used before. You know, and so we're, uh, how many of you, I, mean, I can't remember the last time I cooked three meals uh, in a day. And so this is uh, just the, the kind of things that we're doing. We're tired and the stress level is high. There's so many things going on in our culture and society as well. And so my hope is that as we look to God's word, uh, we'll find restoration. Now, I know those of you who are single, uh, this is still, I always think uh, marriage sermons are important for everybody. For those of you who have been married for decades or for years, uh, you know, you may say, been there, done that. And I, I, think, I think it's really important for all of us to come to God's word uh, humbly, to come to God's word eager to learn and to see new things about what Jesus could tell us about our, uh, the most important relationship that we have. For those of you who are single, um, I can tell you uh, learning about and studying about marriage is so crucial because uh, marriage is something you have to prepare for. And knowing what it is and knowing God's design for it, knowing God's purpose for it uh, will actually help you to prepare for something that uh, many of you do desire. And so I hope that the Word of God will really teach us. I'm not going to do um, kind of a, a deep exegesis of the passage uh, per se, I'm gonna. I'm using this passage as a, a reference, but we're gonna actually kind of scan the entire book of Ephesians uh, because I believe it is related to Genesis chapter three, where we see the first marriage. Uh, those of you who have heard me speak at, uh, at this church, but at a different event, you know uh, I shared my take on the Adam and Eve story, and this is kind of what I. Uh, uh, this is how I read Genesis chapter three in the fall. You see there, uh, you know, you have the great story that the serpent is there tempting Eve. And, you know, the serpent says, did God really say? And, and he's going on and he's trying to deceive uh, the woman twisting uh, the word of God. And one of the things that uh, a, a, a Christian counselor by the name of Larry Crabb noticed was he kind of, he wrote this book called The Silence of Adam. And there he really highlights the fact, like this kind of simple question, where is Adam when Eve is being tempted? Well, 
Genesis 3 gives us a clue. Eve, it says, Eve took the fruit, she bit it, and she gave it to her husband who was with her. And I think this is one of the most important kind of details of the story that is often overlooked when we read the Bible. And that is Adam was standing right next to his wife while she was being deceived. Why is this critical? Number one, he is a husband. He is called to love her. He, uh, she is his partner in life. Um, she, he is one flesh with this woman. Uh, as Paul says, he who loves himself loves his, uh, uh, who loves his wife loves himself. And, and not only that, if you go back and read Genesis carefully, Eve was never created. She, she wasn't created. When the commandment to not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was, was given, that command was given before Eve was created. So Adam, in some sense, is not only the first um, husband, he is also the first pastor. He receives the word of God, and it was his responsibility to communicate that first commandment to his wife. Now, this is what I think happened. I think what was happening is, you know, Eve is being tempted, Adam's standing right there. What Adam should have done, what Adam should have done, if he was a good husband, he should have said, honey, honey, don't, this, this fool doesn't know what he's talking about. Don't, don't talk to this fool. Hey, you, snake, be quiet, shut up. That's not what God, God didn't say that. God didn't, hey, you, he should have taken the head, uh, he should have uh, killed the snake and removed him from the garden. He should have protected the Garden of Eden. He should have protected his wife. He should have protected himself and their future children from this evil one that was twisting the word of God. But that's not what Adam did. And I believe, um, you know, the book of Romans, Paul actually says that sin entered the world through one man. Notice uh, Paul does not blame Eve for bringing sin into the world. He says that Adam uh, brought sin into the world. And I don't believe it's just because Eve sinned first and Adam was the family representative, therefore he was responsible. I don't think that's what happened. I actually believe Adam sinned first. And I believe though Eve committed a sin of commission, uh, we see Adam committing a sin of omission. And that is in his silence, he sinned against God and his wife. Uh, because when he didn't protect her, and I actually think, I'm going to go a little bit further in my speculation and say that I actually think Adam was having doubts. So the serpent is testing, you know, the serpent is deceiving the wife. Did God really say? And I think Adam did what every husband does when he's curious, which is, huh, huh, that's what I do. When I'm like, hey, yeah, you know, like when I'm learning something, I'm like, huh, did, did, did God really say don't do this? You know, I mean, did he really? I don't know if he said. And I think Adam is having this internal conversation in his head. And as he's having doubts about the word of God, when the wife, when, when the wife uh, actually starts to grab the fruit, again, what he should have done was he should have knocked that fruit right out of her hand. But he watches her eat it. Why? I actually think it's because he wanted to see if she would die and see if God's word was true. When she didn't die, Adam said, oh, okay, well, I, guess, I guess God was wrong, and he bit the fruit immediately. And you see, on the one hand, you have Eve's sin, which was declaring autonomy from her husband. 
You know, what Eve should have done is, hey, honey, when you told me about the God's commandment, what, what did he actually say? Can you tell me again? But she doesn't. She completely ignores her husband, and she just engages in this dialogue. And so her uh, fault was actually declaring autonomy from her husband and then autonomy from God. And Adam, in my opinion, sacrificed his wife to see if the word of God was true. And I believe what Adam and Eve did in, in bringing sin into this world, they also brought with it a very specific sin, not just general sin, uh, but also specific sin of a pattern of autonomy and a pattern of sacrificing the other for ourselves. And so when you look at husband and wives, when you look at children, when you look at any human relationship, there is this constant battle for autonomy there is a constant battle of not sacrificing oneself, but rather sacrificing the other person for themselves. God intended intimacy for Adam and Eve to be one, and you see autonomy in Genesis 3. God intended partnership and friendship, and then what you see is enmity between husband and wife. God intended sanctification for husband and wife, but what we see is blame in Genesis chapter 3. And so we, we put our interests ahead of others. We fail to love ourselves and to love others and to love God with all our hearts. And so we see all of mankind not only experiencing sin in general, but this specific relational problem Adam and Eve introduced to the world, which is autonomy and sacrificing the other person. Now we come to the book of Ephesians where we see a, a, a parallel with Genesis. I'm gonna, I did my thesis on this passage, and it is my conviction that uh, Paul organized the entire book of Ephesians according to Genesis chapter 3. I think Genesis chapter 3 was the outline. Why? Because in Genesis 3 we see uh, three different relationships being broken. We see the relationship between God and Adam and Eve being broken. There's now enmity between God and man. We begin to see there's enmity between husband and wife or uh, man and woman or just humans having enmity with one another. And the third dynamic is enmity between man and woman and the serpent. And so there is God and man, man and man, and then there's man and serpent. And if you look at Ephesians chapters 1 through 3, is about God and man being restored. If you look at chapters 4 and 5, you begin to see uh, uh, not just God and man, but now uh, human relationships, children, parents, husband and wives, the church itself. And then in chapter 6, we read about spiritual warfare addressing the enmity between this uh, evil one that tries to lead us away from God. And the point of the book of Ephesians for the Apostle Paul is that in Christ, through his life, his death, and his resurrection, through his obedience of the law, but also his obedience on the cross, what we see is in Christ, the effects of the curse are being reversed. If you guys remember in the, the Tower of Babel story in Genesis, what happens? Because people were wicked in their hearts, they rebelled against the, the commanded diaspora, the scattering of people so that the earth would be filled with the glory of God. What does God do? He sends a curse uh, of language, which ends up becoming a blessing. But we have the curse where now people cannot understand each other. 
in the book of Acts during Pentecost, we see in Christ a reversal of that curse where now the apostles are preaching in a language and everybody hears their own, they hear and they understand. We see a reversal of the curse. Whereas Eve declares autonomy, Jesus arranges himself under the Father, voluntarily under the Father, under the Spirit for a set time. Jesus says in the Gospel of John over and over and over again, I only say what the Father tells me to say. I only do what the Father tells me to do. This is the Son reversing the curse of Eve and arranging himself under the Father temporarily so that he can save humankind. We see uh, what Jesus does is also not just reverse the effects of what Eve brought into the world, but he reverses the effects of what Adam brought into the world. Adam sacrifices his wife to see if the word of God is true. What does Jesus do? He sacrifices himself to prove that the word of God is true as the true and only and great husband to the church. You know, yesterday, one of the things I shared during the seminar is that marriage is hard, but it's very, very simple. And, you know, I say it's hard because it's this human relationship. Marriage, you cannot escape your sin, your baggage, your family upbringing. In fact, for me, it's why I saw a therapist, I started seeing a therapist three and a half years ago, is because all of my family of origin issues and all of my baggage, uh, you see, I, I'm born to parents who are from a city in Korea called Masan, which is, it's basically, uh, uh, you know, Koreans are very hot-tempered people. Uh, imagine South Korea is a chili pepper. I'm from the southern tip, and in Korea, the further south you go, the spicier people get. And we're like, there is no, there's not, there's no more Korea after where my parents were born. It's just ocean after that. And so you have me and my wife come very, my, my wife's family is from there as well. So you have these two hot-tempered people and, and we have, I, I, I needed help to dig through all the baggage of immigration and all the baggage of, of, of family abandonment and all these different things that I had to go through. And so uh, it's, it's, I, I'm telling you, I know how hard it is. But the one thing I want us to know and walk away with when we read the Bible is that it is the most difficult relationship you will ever have. It is the most painful, the most lonely. It, can, it is the brightest of stars as a gift that God gives, but it is also one of the darkest relationships you will ever have. It is hard, but when we read the gospel, we also have to remember that it is simple. The answers are not complicated. It's not calculus. The gospel tells us something that in the myriad of complexity of human relationships and struggle and uh, depression and sin and all these different things we go through, that the answer is simple. It's the gospel. And so the gospel tells us that there's kind of two parts. Number one, we need to receive the love of Jesus. That if you do not receive the love of Christ, um, there, I mean, you're only going to see destruction and decay in your heart and in your relationships with other people. And then the second part of that is there's a need to follow Jesus' way. He is not only the life, but he is also the way. In Ephesians chapter 3, I want to think about this, uh, you, our need to receive the love of Jesus. 
In the book of Ephesians, chapter 3, verses 14 to 21, we read a prayer of uh, the Apostle Paul. And I pray this prayer regularly in my personal spiritual life. And he writes this, For this reason I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Now listen to this, friends. I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's people to grasp how wide, how long, how high, and how deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Paul's prayer for the church at Ephesus was that we would know, we would understand, we would have the power to understand and grasp how wide, long, high, and deep is the love of Christ. I think when I think of width, I always think of surface area. So the wider your tires, the more surface area it covers, therefore it gives you better handling. And so uh, basically I always use it as a metaphor for there is no sin that God cannot forgive. Our darkest evil pales in power compared to the power of his love. And so some of us, we live in shame. Some of us, we live in darkness because we feel like, you know, God can forgive us, but he can't forgive certain things. And the gospel says, no, Paul says, I want you to know how wide is the love of God. That there is nothing that God cannot forgive in his great love. He wants us to comprehend how high the love of God is. For me, I understand, I receive that as a metaphor for this um, unique, divine, un, unreachable, un, a love that you and I will never understand. Because God's love is truly, uniquely unconditional. You know, children, especially here, you want to, parents, you're going to want to cover your kids' ears during this part of the sermon. But there is a, a great deception that goes on, and that is parents believe and they teach their children that their love is unconditional. I don't think that's true. I actually think children's love, I don't think any human love is unconditional. But uh, I think that uh, if there is any unconditional love, I actually think children's love is a little bit more unconditional than parents. I think they have a little bit more resiliency in loving us than we have in loving them. I have five kids. I'm asked all the time, which one's your favorite? Who's your favorite? You have five? Come on. Come on. Tell me who's the favorite. I say, I have no, I have no shame. I say, my favorite kid is whoever obeys. Whoever obeys. You do what I say, you're my favorite. You don't do what I say, I don't know you, you know. And I want you to think about this. Like, we, we say our love is unconditional, but, I mean, there are so many times where that is challenged. I love my wife. We celebrated 20 years of marriage uh, in May, and I can tell you our love is, is on our own very conditional. Very, very conditional, and I hate to admit that. And you see, what we have here is Paul says, I want you to know how high, and I, I don't know if this was Paul's intention, but I'm just sharing with you my imagination, and that is that Paul wants you to know and understand that, that God's love is beyond measure. It is incomprehensible because it is completely unconditional. It is long. It is everlasting to everlasting. 
The Bible says he loved you before you were even formed on this earth and that he will love you for eternity after. And so there is this, this, un, this not only unconditional love, but it is a love that is forever. I remember when my, my wife was pregnant with my first daughter and it was the closest thing. I still pales in comparison to God, but the closest thing I can say of experiencing of loving someone I never met was when my wife was pregnant with my daughter, Lynn. And I remember just being so anxious to meet her. I would sing her songs in her belly. And you know what's kind of crazy is when she would cry, I would sing the songs to her when she was out of the womb. I would sing the songs when she was in the womb, and she would actually stop crying. And if you don't believe, I had friends who didn't believe me, so I would, I would poke her and make her cry at a restaurant, and I'd say, watch this. And I would start singing a Stephen Curtis Chapman song to her, and, and she would literally stop crying. And so I remember loving somebody that I hadn't met, I hadn't seen, and God's love is infinitely more because he was from everlasting to everlasting. Paul wants us to know the depth of God's love, that it is so it is so deep because while we were sinners, while we hated God, while we despised God, while we rebelled against God, he still chose to love us. And so we not only need to receive this love, so what Paul is saying is my prayer for you is that you would understand it because if you don't understand it, you are going to ruin your life. You're going to ruin your marriage. You see, the thing that people say all the time is hurting people hurt. And the reason why we fight, the reason why we curse, the reason why we, uh, uh, we, we, we put so much pain on the people that we love is because at the end of the day, is we don't know that we're loved. We don't know that we're loved. And I know that sounds incredibly simple and basic, but I'm telling you, every act of lashing out, every fear of abandonment, every uh, uh, thing of stress, every anxiety, every depression, all roads lead, to, lead back to the human insecurity of are we loved? And if you step away from the cross, if you step away from the, the, the love of Jesus and you're going to try to build your marriage on something else, I'm telling you there's nothing. Uh, like in Genesis, it says that the world was formless and void, right? It was formless. It had no shape. And it was also void until, and I, and I always wondered, why did God create the world like that? Why did Genesis say that? And then, and then it says, let there be light. Let there be, uh, and then God begins to create with the power of his word. I believe the first verse of Genesis is this, is that there is no meaning, there is no purpose, there is no shape, there is no, there's nothing until God steps into that space. And so it is with marriage. If we do not invite the love of Christ and by faith grasp the love of Christ, then you and I, we will be formless, we will be void, we will be empty, and darkness will hover every area of our life. But we not only are called to receive Jesus' love, but we are called to follow the way of Jesus. That as we receive that love, we are called to share that love. You know, whenever I do premarital counseling for couples, I always make them read and I asked them to memorize 1 Corinthians 13. And the reason why is I end up usually preaching that passage at their wedding. Because uh, 1 Corinthians 13 saved my marriage over and over and over again. 
I memorized it because it articulates the uh, so many aspects of love. And I remember uh, I, I memorized it before I got married to my wife. We got married. We went to Maui for our honeymoon. And um, we got in a huge fight, huge fight. And honestly, it's on, it was only because we were bored. We, we literally fought because we were bored. And uh, so we're, we're, we're on this beautiful island, and, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm screaming at her. She's screaming at me. And, you know, and I, and I slammed the door, and I, and, I, and I was like, you know, oh, I, you know, oh, I, I slammed the door, and I walked away. And as I was walking, I heard, love is patient. I was like, God, not right now. Love is kind. Seriously, God, I'm not in the mood for this. It does not envy. It does not boast. It keeps no record. Like, Holy Spirit, shut up, please, shut up. It's the only time I ever told God to shut up. And then I went down. It always hopes. It always perseveres. And I was like, oh, I'm a sinner. I turned around, and it's like a Korean drama movie. My wife and I, we met halfway because she was going through the same thing too. And we hugged and we cried. Or she cried. I didn't cry. And, and the reason why I ask couples to memorize it is because at their wedding, I'm going to ask them this question, why is love the greatest? Have you ever thought about that? Faith, hope, and love, why is love the greatest? The Bible says you can't know God without faith. The Bible also teaches us that you can't have joy in a world as dark as ours without hope. So you have two indispensable Christian gifts or virtues and God says, the Apostle Paul says, that love is greater than those two indispensable gifts. And the reason why is because of the three, love is the only one that's eternal. Faith is temporary. 1 Corinthians 13 goes on to say that one day, what is faith? Faith is believing in someone or something that you can't see with your eyes. But 1 Corinthians says that when Jesus returns, we will see God face to face. Faith will become sight. Hope is grabbing on to a future reality not yet realized. Do you guys know that in heaven there will be no hope? If you have hope in heaven, you're in big trouble. I hope things get better. I hope, get out. No, in heaven, our deepest dreams, our, our deepest longings are fully realized. Hope becomes reality. Only love is the same. Love is the same yesterday, today, and forever. In other words, I love you is the only thing you will say forever. You will never say, I have faith in heaven. You will never say, I hope in heaven. But the only thing you say on earth that you will say in heaven is, I love you. It's the only permanent virtue. But there's a second reason why love is the greatest, and it's because love is divine. I'm going to, in my opinion, I don't believe God has faith because he sees everything. I don't believe God has hope in the, in the ultimate sense because he knows everything. But God doesn't just have love, he is love. And so you have here what I ask couples to do is not only memorize 1 Corinthians 13, but because after their wedding, I want them to do something. After you memorize it, I want them to take the name, the word love out and put the word Jesus in. Jesus is patient with you. 
Jesus keeps no record of your wrongs. Jesus always protects you. He always trusts you. Jesus will never fail you. And so it is, friends, that you and I, you, you and I, we are called to not only receive that love, but we are also called to be that love for others, to show that love. Now, I know that for a lot of you, you will come, either you are now or you will be at the end of the road for where you feel like there is no more love to give. We went to every therapist. We went to every seminar. We, went to, we got prayer. I prayed. And, and you know what? We're all done. And even if you're not there, uh, every married couple, you will be there at some point. And this is where we have to go from the Garden of Eden to the Garden of Gethsemane. And the way of Jesus is to fall on our knees and say the single most difficult prayer you will ever pray, and that is, not my will, but your will be done. I think my wife and I have made it through 20 years of marriage, not because of a technique. Therapy helps, and I, and I absolutely recommend therapy, I, I think. But therapy did not did not save my soul. At the end of the day, I think the reason why we made it, because Jesus, through his, through his spirit, brought us to our knees to say, not my will, but yours be done. I will keep no records of wrong. I will put to death my self-righteousness. I will listen. I will forgive. I will fight this desire, and I want to challenge you at the end of this, that the road from the Garden of Eden to the Garden of Gethsemane is always the road of surrender. I do a lot of contemplative practices now because I'm so jacked up. And one of the things I do is I practice silence and solitude, and I write down these three questions. I want, I fear, and I surrender. And I write down all the things I want. I want a job. I literally want a job right now. I apply to Trader Joe's. They won't hire me. I, 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 I want to know. I mean, I'm not looking. I apply to Trader Joe's because of COVID, and I want to wear that Hawaiian shirt. Um, and, and, you know, one of the things is, like, I, I want a job. I want my kids to be healthy. I want my wife to stop bothering me. I want this and I want that. And I just, I just write it down. And then I go through, I, I am afraid of. And then comes the most important part of my prayer, which is I surrender. The older we get, the more you and I will be faced with our limitations. That's one of the reasons why we go through midlife crisis. And when we go through that, God is asking us to let go and to surrender. And in that surrender, you will hear his voice, you will see his face, you will experience his touch, and you will have the power to not only be loved, but to love again. Let's pray. Father, we have come to, we, 
regularly come to the place where love feels like a fairy tale. It feels like a mythology that only the few get to truly have. But Father, I pray that you would restore our hope and our faith in love as you restore our faith and hope in Christ. And I pray that you would give us a heart to love again by turning to your love and being loved by you and then to pick up our cross and in complete and total surrender every day to walk with Jesus and to love others as we love ourselves. Father, I want to pray for the marriages that are broken, for the couples considering divorce, for the families that are being torn up because of the fight and the stress. I want to pray for those newlyweds that are that are in that loneliness and, and wondering, do the, does the other person really love me? Do they really hear me? Do they really understand me? And when we go through that dark night of the soul, I pray that the love of Christ would shine a light that would restore our faith once again. And Father, I, I hope that these couples don't feel insulted by me saying love is simple because I know how hard it is. I know how complicated love has become. But I pray that the simplicity of your sovereignty and your love and your grace would, would melt our hearts again. And one by one, we would we would deal with these, the myriad of issues our lives have been entangled with. And I pray that our this we would we would be a testimony to the power, the healing power of surrender. Jesus, lead us from Eden to the to Gethsemane, where we could one day pray like you, not mine, not my will, but yours be done. In your name we pray. Amen.